Welcome to the 345th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. Stay tuned for my interview with New York Times bestselling author, John Hart, author of the new book, The Unwilling. Stay tuned for the interview. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is New York Times bestselling writer, John Hart, author of the new novel, The Unwilling. Hart is the only author to ever win the Edgar Award for Best Novel consecutively. John, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks, Jeff. I'm really glad to be here. Sure. Well, if someone hasn't heard about your new novel, The Unwilling, yet, how would you describe the novel? Well, uh, let me start by saying uh, today's its first day on sale, uh, so don't feel bad if you haven't heard about it. Uh, (laughs) It's the first uh, historical novel I've ever written, meaning it's set entirely in the past. It's set in Charlotte, North Carolina in 1972, kind of a shadow of the Vietnam War era. Um, But it's about a family there. It's about that community, uh, you know, and the young men that are coming home from war uh, and what happens with this one family in particular uh, when they're, uh, the oldest son comes home after three tours and a cloud of suspicion. Um, and he gets sucked into a world of heroin and gun running and illegal motorcycle gangs and, uh, does three years in prison. And the book opens as he's coming home after that prison stint. And his uh, younger brother, 18 is about to graduate from high school and trying to decide what sort of man he's going to be. Well, do you remember the original impetus or idea that led you to write The Unwilling? I do, actually. You know, it's, it's, I think it's the only book I've ever written that came from uh, a germ of an idea based on something that actually happened in real life. And uh, let me walk you back 35 years. I was uh, much younger, obviously, and um, driving to the North Carolina coast in a convertible uh, with a beautiful woman in the car next to me, uh, my girlfriend at the time. And we hit an empty stretch of road and on that stretch of road passed a prison transfer bus with about 15 or 20 inmates on board, you know, the dirty glass, the wire uh, over the glass. And, you know, they're all pressed uh, to those windows to watch the pretty girl in the convertible go by. And I had this strange thought. I mean, even at the time I was kind of a, you know, wannabe writer, But I had this strange thought. What if um, this beautiful young woman did something um, to stir the pot, so to speak? And so in The Unwilling, I have a similar scene with these two brothers, uh, the younger one right out of about to graduate high school and his brother fresh out of prison, trying to reconnect um, over an afternoon out, you know, kind of drinking at the lake with some attractive young women. And on the way home, they find a similar stretch of empty road and uh, pass a similar prison bus. It just happens to be the same prison uh, where the older brother from which the older brother was just released. And one of the women, a girl named Tyra, who is um, beautiful and venal and prideful and cruel and sexual and all these things. And her drunkenness decides it would be fun to taunt these prisoners. So she stands up in the convertible and puts on something of a show, uh, which leads to a riot on the bus and a bloody beatdown. And two years, uh, not two years, I'm sorry, two days later, uh, this young woman, Tyra, is found murdered. Um, You know, suspicion turns immediately to Jason, the older brother, because he does have such a history of violence. But what we find out is that um, word got back to a very dangerous man in the prison who very much wants Jason back on the inside. 
And so even from death row, he's uh, pulling strings and uh, orchestrating Jason's return. And so that's a big part of the book is, you know, who is this guy in prison and why does the, I call him the most dangerous man alive? Why does the most dangerous man alive want Jason back in prison? Gotcha. Well, you mentioned earlier that you had this idea years ago and that you said that you, you know, were, were starting your writing. What, what was your writing journey like that led you to writing your first novel? So I think like most, if not all writers, I mean, it began with a great childhood passion for reading and I give my parents credit for putting me on the path, but I, I was one of those kids that, you know, I could go on vacation and read, you know, three or four novels in a week, <laughs> you know, stay up, staying up till two or three in the morning. Um, so I always love the escapist nature of a good novel. I mean, that's, that's why I read. I like to be drawn out of the world and taken into a, a new one. Um, you know, and, and as I grew and matured, I often found myself thinking I could do this or I could do better than this, which is a, you know, a childish conceit. I think, you know, I just figured it must be the easiest thing in the world to write a novel. Uh, of course it's not, that's magical thinking. Um, I outlined my first novel when I was 20, I was living at the beach and, uh, that outline never got off the cocktail napkins. Um, and I still have a stack of them, these cocktail napkins after work, uh, daydreaming about a novel. Um, I found myself taking, uh, a master's in accounting. Don't ask me why. That was a god awful year of my life, but it forced me. <laughs> it's so miserable for me. It really forced me to take a, a really important step, which is to stop talking about writing a novel and actually write one. And you know, I've met so many people that love to talk about the novel they're going to write, but sitting down and doing it, of course, is really, really hard, and it's fraught with doubt and um, suffering. You know, all these artsy things. And in rejection, I mean, that book was roundly rejected um, everywhere I, I sent it. And then I found myself in law school a few years later and didn't much care for that either. And so I thought, well, you know, let's try another book. And that one was equally unpublished. You might get a pattern here. I'm, I'm, I was very goal oriented and I wanted to be a writer. You know, I, just, I wanted this for a living. Uh, anyway, it would have been very easy to quit after any of those uh, failures because, I mean, they were hard, hard failures. I mean, hard no's, hard rejections. Um, and then when I was 35, I guess I was working as a criminal defense attorney, um, had a you know young wife and a brand new daughter, and I'd been a lawyer long enough to start getting the really bad guy clients. And one of them was a child molester who'd abused his four-year-old stepdaughter and wanted me to get him off of it, you know, off the charge. And I just didn't want to represent him. And I was court appointed. The judge said, you don't have a choice. The firm said, you don't have a choice. Uh, so I said, you know what, maybe it's time to try one more shot uh, at the brass ring. So I, I quit my practice. I gave myself a year uh, and wrote The King of Lies, which uh, became my first uh, published novel and my first uh, New York Times bestseller. And I was able to, to quit um, you know, regular jobs at that point. I've been doing this full time ever since. Well, that's a great story. What kept you going um, when you were writing those early novels that you um, said, you know, got rejected and didn't really um, go anywhere? Well, a, a combination of um, ignorance, meaning I had no idea, truly no idea how hard it is um, to write a decent novel, to find uh, a publisher, and then to actually be successful enough that I could do it for a living. I mean, it was kind of a, a joyful ignorance. Now, it happens. I mean, it happens all the time. It happens every day. So I don't want to discourage any of your listeners, um, but it's important to go into it with um, open eyes. Um, so it was, it was large part that just kind of, you know, dewy eyed innocence that I can do this. And 
you know, every other career path that I explored just didn't do it for me. You know, I, I was raised to prepare for the future and make sure I could meet my responsibilities. So, you know, grad school and different careers. I mean, I was a banker, stockbroker, lawyer, tried all these things. The only thing that I've ever been really passionate about, professionally speaking, is writing. And um, the idea of not being able to do that for a living is what brought me back that third time. Uh, but it, it did take a lot to overcome the the pain of those rejections because, you know, I mean, you, you probably know this, um, you know, heart and soul goes into writing these books and rejections can feel very personal. Um, so anyway, that that's sort of where we ended up. And um, you know, luckily it worked out. Well, are there ever days when you sit down to write and it's tough to get going? And if so, what do you do on those days to get yourself started? You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Yeah, man, I absolutely have those days. Um, you know, I, I have them even now. I mean, I'm uh, this is my seventh novel. Um, the six before this, I mean, all did well. They're all bestsellers. And you'd think that it would be easy at that point um, to, to just be confident every day. But it's not. I mean, you know, every book is different and uh, they all require 100 percent full and total commitment. Um, you know, when I, at this point, I mean, I'm, I'm so deep into this. Um, you know, I love it. Uh, I cherish it. I try to safeguard it like I would a child and by, I'm talking about my career. Um, but I have those dark days where, um, you know, the story's not there, the writing is fighting me. Um, and I just push through it. I mean, you just have to realize that it's a sprint. I mean, it's a marathon rather than a sprint and, um, you know, get up, do it again. If it didn't work yesterday, try it the following day. And if that doesn't work, keep going. I, you know, I got to my fifth novel, um, which eventually became uh, a book called Redemption Road. I spent a year writing what was supposed to be my fifth novel. I got 300 plus words into it before I realized it just wasn't good enough and nothing I could do would make it good enough. And I became aware that I'd known this for months and was trying to fix it and didn't want to admit that. And finally, you know, called my editor and said, look, I'm not going to make this deadline. Um, and I ended up throwing out that entire year's effort and starting over. And um, it took me two years then to write what became Redemption Road. So, um, you know, that that's a dark spot. I mean, I actually had probably about a five or six month pretty serious depression after throwing out a year's work and finding the will to start again. Um, but, you know, if you, if you love it and you have to do it, you just you get there. Yeah. Yeah. 
So you said that this was the first novel that you've written that's set completely in the past, in the 1970s, and um, your character was a Vietnam War veteran. What kind of research did you do um, to kind of get yourself in that mindset of so, writing about the 70s? Yeah, no, great, great question. So in 1972, I was seven years old. Um, so I remember the 70s pretty well, you know, from a childhood perspective. So one of the reasons I picked that era um, is because I have these memories of such a simple time, right? I mean, kids played in the creeks and, you know, we played stickball and, um, you know, all these things. We, we didn't have smartphones and, you know, it, it was a very different childhood. And so I wanted to sort of capture that simplicity and which is why my main character is 18. He's still very close to that. I mean, he's involved in his first love interest. He's still in school. He's got childish um, fears and aspirations and, you know, trying very hard to become an, an adult. But being an adult now and looking back on the 70s, I understand what a difficult time it was for the country. You know, we had war and uh, riots and, you know, the Kent State shootings and Watergate and corruption and inflation and the Cold War. And, um, you know, it was a difficult, complex time. Um, So I wanted to capture that duality. And uh, the research that I had to do was mostly fun. Right. So if you're going to immerse your reader in 1972, you need to know, um, you know, what's the big movie, what's the big album, what chain restaurants might have existed in the South that don't exist anymore. You know, what did a new car cost? I mean, all these things. And you want to sort of feather them in uh, to give that feeling of you know reality uh, to the story without beating the reader over the head, right? It's a very subtle thing. And then because a lot of the, the story is about this young man, Jason, uh, who comes home after three tours in Vietnam. And keep in mind, he was a very decorated soldier. In fact, one of the most decorated soldiers before he came home suddenly under a cloud and a dishonorable discharge and addicted to, to morphine and then heroin and, um, you know, very criminal in his uh, dealings. You know, uh, I needed to understand a little bit about the Vietnam War and what happened there and, you know, what could have made someone, um, you know, shift so hard from decorated soldier to, to seemingly lost cause. Um, and you know, those types of research are a lot of fun. Um, and I think, I, I think I really, I mean, heck, I think I rang the bell with it, to be honest. That's great. So given your, your writing career thus far and your success and what you talked about earlier of writing these two early novels and going through the process of getting your first novel published, what writing advice would you offer for those who are working on their own stories and novels? Wow. Okay. Um, probably, probably a few bits of advice. Let's start with this. The world is full of people that are going to tell you you can't do it. Um, and I think I met most of them. <laughs> and I, I, have my, I have my theories on this. You know, I think that people who gave up on their dreams, if they see someone chasing dreams of their own, they have a kind of a vested interest in that person's failure. I mean, if, if that person succeeds, then perhaps they were wrong to quit chasing their own dreams. And if that person fails, then, you know, maybe they were just wise and smart to, to give up and settle. <clears throat> so don't let people tell you no. I mean, my mother, who is my biggest fan now, told me, and I quote, don't quit your day job, you will never get published. And that was her um, sort of go-to setting until I was in my eighth foreign language and, um, you know, two weeks on the bestseller list. Uh, so so don't listen to people that say you can't do it. Have faith in yourself, but understand that it is as much um, craft as art. And so you, you, know, you may have some God-given talent, but it can always be improved. And, and I meet so many writers that 
have this attitude that once the word is on the page, it's sacrosanct. I, I won't change it. And that's ridiculous. You know, you gotta, you gotta edit, you gotta be open to constructive criticism. Um, you know, nothing, nothing is sacred. No, you, you gotta murder your darlings. I guess it was Faulkner that said that. Um, and then, you know, finally, um, don't, don't be scared to read books on how to do it because yes, it, it I think it's very hard to, um, make a bad writer, a good writer, um, through study. I think, you know, that doesn't happen very often, but I think you can make a good writer, a great writer through study. And a lot of that's just learning the the pitfalls. I mean, avoid passive use. I mean, show, don't tell, uh, you know, how to dialogue tags work. I mean, these are, these are things that I kind of had naturally because I've just read a billion uh, novels by that point. Um, but I did read one book on how to write and sell my first novel. And I think it, you know, saved me a little trouble down the road because, you know, these editors and agents, they're so um, jaded, right? I mean, these are hardworking uh, men and women that see the good and the bad and everything in between, and you cannot lose them on the first page. So you really have to avoid rookie mistakes. Um, you know, and then, you know, just read, read a lot. Um, and it's one of my great frustrations is that I can't read very much when I'm working because I start to sound like that person, whoever I'm reading. So um, it's kind of the frustrating part of my job. Well, on that note, what novels or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed? Oh, um, you know, I think probably the the best surprise for me, and I've recommended this book uh, wholeheartedly, um, is a book by a guy named Peter Heller called The Dog Star. And it's kind of in a bit of apocalyptic, post-apocalyptic fiction Um but it's also kind of a love story about a man and his dog in a you know in this terrible new world, and just beautifully done. I mean, it, it's a book I wish I'd written. That's great. I've heard I've heard lots of great things about that. Yeah, it's really good. So, where can people find you online if they want <coughs> if they want to learn more about you and your novels? Um, yeah, so I have a website. It's johnhardfiction.com, and there are links to social media there, etc. Um, I don't tweet much. Um, but I am on Facebook and Instagram and those are both John Hart author. Uh, and I am on Twitter. I just, uh, I don't go there very often. Um, I, I, I have very mixed feelings <laughs> about social media. <laughs> to be honest with you. I hear you. I hear you. Well, again, we've been speaking with New York times, bestselling writer, John Hart, author of the new novel, the unwilling, the novel is on sale now. So go buy a copy. And John, thanks for doing this interview. Yeah, Jeff, thank you. Uh, great, great, great chatting with you. Appreciate it. Great. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. 
Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.